Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Welcome to an Institute for Government briefing. Today we're going to look at the government's internal market bill, that big blockbuster. Well, it's actually not hugely long, uh, but it's certainly very controversial that the government released earlier this week. I'm Jill Rutter, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Government, and I'm delighted to be joined by three Brexit experts from the Institute for Government who stayed up all night reading and digesting this bill so really you don't have to. So welcome to Maddie Timmont-Jack, James Kane, and Jess Sargent. Before we get into the politics and the legal niceties, don't worry, we will, I wanted to start at the beginning. James, before Brexit, we never used to talk about the UK internal market. So what is it? And why does the government think it needs to legislate about it? Well, it's a bit of an odd term, really. Originally, internal market just meant what it said, the market that is internal to a country as opposed to its external market, its trade with other countries. And it was used that way back in the 19th century. Uh, Now, one of the EU's projects when it got going in the 60s, 70s, but most of all after the Single European Act in 1986, was something called the completion of the internal market. And that was used to mean the whole set of laws and policies and directives and regulations that were set up with the aim of transforming uh, what was then the European Economic Community into a single internal market. So trading between two countries that were members of the community would look just the same as trading within one country, so a whole internal market. And so the, the, the phrase internal market started to be used to mean those policies and regulations and directives uh, that helped create that single market within which you can trade freely. And that's the sense in which the government is using it now. So rather curiously, it's, it's sort of imported the term back from the EU to describe the policies that will ensure inside the UK the same kind of free trade and absence of uh, discriminatory regulation that you see between EU member states. So do ministers really think there's a big risk that without the EU to set that sort of framework that uh, I think one of their examples was a Welsh lamb farmer would find they couldn't sell their lamb to consumers in Scotland. Um, Was that a real risk or are ministers inventing this? I'd say it's a possibility uh, without new legislation. At the moment, the devolved administration's Uh, ability to legislate uh, and to make regulation is constrained by EU internal market law. So if you look at the Scotland Act or the Wales Act or the the Government of Wales Act rather or the Northern Ireland Act, uh, you will see whole swathes of regulation which are just devolved. So all three of them uh, specifically devolve. It's it's a slightly odd way of doing it. Uh, They specifically devolve um, regulation that's intended to promote food safety and animal health and that sort of thing. Now, at the moment, that's constrained by the fact that there is a whole load of EU regulation in that area, and also by the fact that the EU enforces some principles like non-discrimination and mutual recognition, and the devolved administrations have to pay heed to those. So in theory, yes, taking EU law away and leaving the devolution settlements where they are, you could see that kind of barrier to trade emerge within the EU. 
The one thing I would say is that you wouldn't see it immediately because it's not like there are a whole load of devolved regulations just sitting there in the bowels of St. Andrew's House in Edinburgh uh, waiting to come out and discriminate against English trade. It really is something to stop new barriers emerging at any time in the future. It's not something to deal with barriers that exist at the moment or even necessarily ones that are likely to emerge in the very near future. Maddie, what uh, what are ministers proposing to do to ensure that we maintain this internal market within Great Britain? And I use the term advisedly to mean England, Scotland and Wales. So James has already talked a bit about what uh, how the EU manages its own internal market, and and a couple of those terms are very relevant here. So um, they they're including including clauses related to mutual recognition and non discrimination of goods and services um, within within Great Britain, as as you say. Um, I mean, what that essentially means is that any good or service that is sort of legal or is is regulated to a certain standard in one part of Great Britain will be able to be sold in the other parts, even if the regulations are of a different standard or a lower standard than the others. And and this is one of the sort of big concerns, really, of the devolved governments, which I think we will come on to, but is the fact that a good or service which has sort of lower standards would still be able to be sold in the markets of Wales, Scotland or England, even if they they themselves have higher standards. And how are they proposing to oversee all this? Well, well, one of the things that they have done in, in the in the bill that they've introduced is they've given sort of a new monitoring function to the Competition and Markets Authority. They're going to set up a new office for the internal market, which will be able to report on how the internal market is functioning um, and, and sort of how those clauses are operating in practice. Although it has a monitoring function, it doesn't really have any sort of enforcement functions against the other governments. They said that if there are any disputes, that this will actually be managed at an intergovernmental, uh, at a political level to be resolved. And then I think there is a big question about um, what it means then for the courts, so that if individuals and businesses are concerned that... Um, one of the governments has introduced legislation that would discriminate against um, sort of their their access to that market. Um, then, there, then there's a question about whether they could they could bring that case uh, to the courts. And are there any exceptions to this? Um, I mean, it sounds pretty much as though you know everybody has to accept what everybody else does. Is anyone allowed to to you know, have a carve out? I think. You know, Scottish lawyers need to know about Scottish law rather than English law. Is that allowed for in these uh, in the bill? There are some exceptions that they've included in the schedules to the bill. So, um, for example, there are um, exceptions around animal and plant um, safety. Um, so that if, for example, there was a disease outbreak in in one part of Great Britain, then you, then that could still be managed, and and, and you, it wouldn't necessarily be spread to, to the rest of Great Britain. There are also um, they talked about the mutual recognition of professional qualifications. And again, there are some exceptions there. Um, but but I would say that compared to how the EU internal market, and, and I think James might be able to add a bit more light here, the exceptions are definitely not as far reaching as that. So I think there are some quite big concerns that areas that previously um, the, the devolved administrations had more freedom to legislate on would be caught within these new provisions in the internal market bill. James, do you want to add anything on that? Yeah, I suppose uh, if you look at the uh, exceptions that the EU provides to its internal market law, well, first of all, in in the treaty itself, in the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union in Article um, 36, I think, um, you've got a whole list of exceptions uh, where regulation can be applied in a way that creates barriers to trade when it normally couldn't. So things that are necessary 
to protect health. That's in the UK uh, equivalent. Um, but there are some things that aren't. So, for instance, the protection of uh, industrial and commercial property, uh, protection of sort of historic artistic treasures, so regulations effectively to prohibit, um, I don't know, Italian Renaissance paintings. Um, I say that because I'm in Italy at the moment, um, being exported to other member states. And so the, the, the list of exceptions uh, in the uh, UK Act is quite a bit shorter uh, than it is in the EU. Um, so it, it is a much more restrictive uh, list of uh, exceptions there. The only thing I would say is that you really have to look at EU internal market law in its totality. So you've got uh, a lot of exceptions to the principles of mutual recognition uh, and and non-discrimination in the EU treaty, but you've also got a very large body of regulation that spans the whole of the EU. So if you're interested in food safety, well, the food safety, uh, for food safety, the mutual recognition principle actually applies less than you would think because most food safety is actually regulated uh, by uh, EU regulations like uh, the General Food Law Regulation 178-2002 uh, or the... Uh, the, the set of regulations that were called the hygiene package that were adopted in 2004. Now, that's also quite different from the UK because the UK is not proposing to make any efforts towards harmonisation in those areas. So um, I think uh, it is true, yes, that the, the, UK, uh, the UK mutual recognition principle is subject to fewer exceptions. Uh, but on the other hand, there is also less overarching UK regulation interfering with the devolved administration's autonomy in those areas. Okay, we'll come on to that a bit later when we look at how the Scottish and Welsh governments have reacted, though, spoiler alert, it's not been very positive. Um, Jess, uh, lots of people think, actually, this is only about Northern Ireland. Um, So what's the bill got to tell us about Northern Ireland and what's going to happen over there? Because Northern Ireland is different. Jess? Absolutely. As you kind of alluded to earlier, uh, because of the protocol, these, this principle of mutual recognition can't apply uh, to Northern Ireland in the same way as it p- applies to the countries of GB. So under the protocol, Northern Ireland is required to comply with EU law in certain areas. So that means that anything coming into it um, will also need to comply. And that's why we have the need for additional kind of checks and processes. So the UK UK law can't determine what's acceptable in Northern Ireland. But what it can do is guarantee uh, that anything that is produced and exported from Northern Ireland is acceptable in the rest of the UK. And that's what this bill tries to do. What it does is it legislates uh, for unfettered access for Northern Ireland businesses to the UK internal market. And this was a commitment that was made by the UK government to legislate for this um, back in the deal that restored Stormont um, in January. So what the UK says the purpose of this bill is as well as to protect the function of the internal market is to uh, protect Northern Ireland's place um, in that. Uh, But as we know, there have been some slightly more controversial provisions um, in that. Um, So what the UK government is trying to do here is there are certain things uh, that it it has a different interpretation of what the protocol does or should say than perhaps what the EU thinks. So one of the issues here is exit summary declarations. Um, so the only thing that is required on trade from Northern Ireland to Great Britain under the protocol is this one piece of paper called an exit summary declaration. Um, Are those the forms Boris Johnson told everybody to put in the bin? 
if they were Absolutely. asked to fill them in. <laughs> they are. Um, so in reality, this is quite a small form. It's not as extensive as a full customs declaration, and it's likely to not have a massive cost implication. But it is the one thing standing in the way of uh uh, uh, Boris Johnson's commitment to ensure completely unfettered access for Northern Ireland businesses to uh, the UK internal market. And so what the legislation does is it says that even if the EU don't agree for an exemption in that particular area, which is what the UK is asking for, they'll just disregard them anyway. Now, the legislation is very clear that ministers are allowed to disregard the protocol and disregard international law Uh, more generally. Um, So unsurprisingly, this has caused a lot of controversy, both in, you know, in the UK and also um, upset a lot of people at the EU level as well. And is that the only bit of EU law that the UK is um, proposing to disregard or the EU withdrawal agreement the UK is proposing to think the term we're using this week is overwrite in this legislation? Yes. Um, so as well as the uh, the paperwork, that bit of paperwork I mentioned, um, the bill also gives uh, ministers the power to add their interpretation on uh, the state aid obligations under the protocol. Um, so the Northern Ireland Protocol says that Northern Ireland, anything that affects trade between Northern Ireland and the EU could be subject to EU subsidy controls. So um, the UK will have to ask the EU for permission um, in order to go ahead with certain subsidies. Now, when the Uh, when ministers signed the protocol, they might not have realised how wide reaching uh, these provisions might end up being. So, for example, there is concern that if a business operated UK wide, so they just had one branch in Northern Ireland, say, if if they were granted subsidies by the UK government, then that could be captured by the provisions in the Northern Ireland protocol. Um, So what the bill does is it allows the UK ministers to limit the scope of that provision according to their interpretation and also apply UK rather than EU case law um, if these cases ever end up in the courts. Um, so it's, it, that's another way in which um, the UK government is trying to, uh, yes, insist on its own interpretation um, of what it thinks the protocol involves, even if that contravenes the letter of the law. Now, there is also one final thing which didn't end up being in this bill, but we know the UK government is potentially uh, going to introduce um, in the finance bill, which will come later in the autumn. Um, So under the protocol, if there's no deal, then any goods that are considered at risk from moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland into the rest of the EU will be subject to tariffs. Now, the Joint Committee, which is the UK-EU body um, that is kind of uh, responsible for overseeing the withdrawal agreement, that has responsibility for defining what is considered at risk. And this is quite a big decision. It will depend whether, you know, tariffs apply to 80% of Northern Ireland goods or just five, depending on how narrow or wide that definition is. Um, so what the UK government might do later on in the later down the line is give UK ministers the power to decide to decide unilaterally what they think at risk means. And this could be in the event that the Joint Committee doesn't make a decision on that. Okay, so uh, anyone want to add anything? Is there anything else we need to know about uh, about what's in this bill, or is that that it? So there's one other thing um, which came as potentially a bit of a surprise uh, to some people, um, and that is the new powers the UK government's taking to spend money in devolved areas. Um, so it's promised the UK government has promised to replace EU funding schemes, so things like EU structural funds, um, through something called the UK Shared Prosperity Fund. And there's been questions and debate going on for years at exactly how it will do that, whether it will give these mon- this money to the devolved administrations, like happens now under the EU systems, 
or whether it will go to local councils or whether the UK government will be responsible for determining where that ha- where that money goes and how it's spent. So it looks like in this bill, that now means that the UK government, that they, it's the final option that it is the UK government that's going to decide how this money is spent. Um, this is also likely to add another list uh, to the grievances of the devolved administrations, particularly in Wales, which obviously is a big recipient of EU funding. Um, so another another problem with, um, potentially with this bill that the government might have to face. So that means basically that that spending will come with big union jacks attached to any project that it's funding to make the case that being part of the union is probably on balance in the interests of Scotland and maybe even Wales. Okay, so uh, that's what's in the bill. And we worked out sort of why ministers think they need to have this big bill. Indeed, they're trying to get it through very quickly. So I think it's fair comment to say it's triggered two big rounds. Uh, One about the withdrawal agreement, the interact there, that's triggered a big round with the EU and some very critical comments from some government backbenchers. Uh, It's led to an emergency meeting of the Joint Committee, which is actually happening more or less as we record this. Uh, And it may have provoked the departure of the head of the government legal department, Sir Jonathan Jones, who announced earlier this week that he will be standing down. So that's round one. And round two is this row with Scotland and Wales over uh, Westminster power grabs and... uh, and on other provisions of the bill, as Jess was telling us about who gets the money that is coming back that used to be spent through the structural fund. So let's let's go first to that first big row. Uh, James, uh, you're uh, sort of more of a lawyer than the rest of us. Um, this morning, in one of the many arguments we've heard from the government behind why they feel the need to take these powers to be able to change the protocol, Grant Shap said these were sort of just basically clarifying technicalities and that actually it would be a bit stoppy by the government uh, if they didn't act to clear this up in the event that there was no agreement in the joint committee about some of these issues that are open to interpretation weren't finally settled in the withdrawal agreement. Do you think they have a point? Not much of one, uh, I have to say. Uh, In some areas, there are uh, potential ambiguities in the protocol. So if you look at the exit summary declarations issue, um, I think you could probably argue that there is a bit of uh, a bit of ambiguity in the protocol in that uh, one article of it uh, in, I think, Article 5.3 uh, essentially says that all EU customs legislation, which includes uh, the requirement for exit summary declarations, applies in Northern Ireland. And then you've got uh, another bit of the protocol in Article 6, which says that nothing in this protocol prevents the United Kingdom from ensuring unfettered access to Northern Ireland goods to the UK market. So you could just about argue that those two conflict, and that conflict needs to be resolved some way or another, ideally by the Joint Committee, but failing that by the UK unilaterally. Although my personal view is that the obligation to uh, apply EU customs law in, in Northern Ireland is pretty clear. Um, on state aid, I think the point is very, very hard to see because I just don't see that ambiguity that they are trying to resolve there. The protocol is perfectly clear. EU state aid law applies in Northern Ireland uh, to the extent that it is uh, to the extent that it, it relates to the trade between Northern Ireland and the rest of the EU, which is covered by the protocol. And um, 
you know, you could you could perhaps argue that it would be helpful to have some kind of guidelines or uh, or, or perhaps even a decision of the Joint Committee to say, well, this is the kind of state aid that affects trade between Northern Ireland and and the rest of the EU. I mean, it's obviously complicated by the fact we don't know quite what the UK state aid regime looks like. But back in the summer, uh, UK government officials were briefing that they thought that provision would have pretty minimal impacts, uh, this Article 10 provision on state aid. Do you think that they've uh, they've seen something that's made them change their mind about how the EU might use that provision? Well, to be honest, Jill, I never really understood why they were saying that at the time, because an awful lot of the people who... Uh, who know a lot about state aid, a lot of lawyers like George Peretz who practice in the field of state aid said, no, this is perfectly clear. It applies to all state aid that could affect trade between Northern Ireland and the rest of the EU, which means it has a huge field of application because an awful lot of uh, businesses, as the government in fact has pointed out when it's been talking about the need to protect Northern Ireland's place in the UK internal market, an awful lot of businesses operate on a pan-UK basis, which means that if you give a subsidy to them, even if you attempt to confine it to one part of the UK, it is probably going to have knock-on effect to their business in Northern Ireland, which is in turn going to have ramifications for their business in Northern Ireland's trade with the rest of the EU. Um, so I think uh, the, the the mystery is not so much that they have finally discovered this problem, it's that they didn't see it for the sort of six, seven months when an awful lot of people who who were well known for their expertise in this field were saying no, you, you really have sold the pass here. And people were saying that literally almost as soon as the protocol was published uh, back last October. Uh, so the fact that the government has only realised this now is, is, is frankly bizarre if that's what happened. OK, maybe a memo to Michael Gove that sometimes it's worth listening to experts before you sign things. But anyway, moving swiftly on. Um, I'm just sort of wondering on your take, James, on this sort of argument we're having um, about whether the UK is really acting in a sort of rather rogue way. Um, The Ministerial Code, the Civil Service Code say that ministers and civil servants are obliged to obey the law, but some people are suggesting that actually there are two different sorts of law. There's domestic law, and they do have to obey that until they change it, but then then there's international law, which isn't quite the same category. We've seen a number of examples being brought forward. We had uh, had the sort of reference to some provisions setting aside double tra- tax treaties if they uh, had unintended consequences. George Osborne said, no, 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 you're misreading this. That was all fine. Then this morning, we suddenly discovered uh, Canada uh, being cited over its legalization of cannabis in contravention, contravention of international obligations. Um is there one? Is it right that there's actually a sort of different status of law between domestic law and international law? I think we're now moving on to General Belgrano um, as the case to cite on this. Um, um, from the point of view of the ministerial code, then I think I mean setting aside the kind of bigger question about what is international law, about which numerous books have been written, uh, and I'm suddenly not going to give an answer on that question. Um, but, but from the point of view of the ministerial code, I think it's hard to argue that international law uh, is not included in ministers' obligation to uh, uphold the rule of law uh, because it used to be mentioned by name. Um, so the ministerial code used to say 
uh, ministers have an obligation to uphold the law, including international law. That was then taken out under the Cameron government. And at the time, the government said, when it was challenged on this, no, 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 this is just a tidying up exercise. Of course, law includes international law. And this was cited in the decision of the Court of Appeal a little while later. So uh, the, the, the ministerial code specifically refers to law. It used to refer to international law as well. Uh, it doesn't now, but the government has always said that that is just because law includes international law. So the reference covers it. Um, so, I mean, setting aside the question of of whether there are different statuses of law and hierarchies of norms and all that sort of Hans Kelsen stuff, um, then I think uh, it, it's hard to argue that ministers do not have an obligation to uphold international law under the ministerial code. And are you convinced by some of these precedents that ministers are now citing in defence of what they're doing? I mean, I think another one was the sort of uh, European Court of Human Rights judgment on uh, on prisoners voting, which the UK has not implemented and says is a matter for Parliament, not a matter for the European Court of Human Rights, not the ECJ. Well, I, I mean, if I can be forgiven for using a Latin phrase, abusus non tollit usum, Only if you translate it, James. The fact that something is abused does not mean that it can't be used. So, um, or or to put it another way, um, the fact that there are breaches of international law by other countries does not make breaching international law a good thing. It means that the Canadians uh, have behaved badly uh, in in, in legalising cannabis without first uh, changing their international obligations to fit. And one of the aspects of... uh, of international treaties that does make them different from most forms of domestic law is that usually, and the withdrawal exception, the withdrawal agreement is an exception to this, usually states that sign treaties can get out of them fairly easily. So uh, it makes sense if you plan to, if you decide that a treaty no longer suits you, then what you ought to do is say formally uh, that we are withdrawing from this treaty or that we are denouncing the treaty if it's a bilateral treaty. Uh, and then change your your domestic legislation to fit. Uh, the UK can't do this in this case because the withdrawal agreement doesn't have provisions for uh, denunciation, which means that in principle it should just stick by it indefinitely. Uh, and the fact that other states have not always upheld their commitments uh, does not mean that upholding your commitments is a sensible thing to do. In fact, Britain has always prided itself in the past uh, on the fact that it did uh, stick to its commitments and keep its promises, even while other states perhaps played a bit fast and loose with with the law at times. Okay, so that's the sort of legal position. Um, Jess, ministers have been saying this, I think the Prime Minister said yesterday in Prime Minister's questions, that the whole purpose of this was to protect the Good Friday Agreement uh, and to protect Northern Ireland's place in the Union. So what's the reaction been in Northern Ireland? Well, as you can imagine, it's been quite a mixed reaction. Um, So it's provoked very strong opposition and condemnation from uh, some parties who make up the executive. Um, So those are the nationalist parties, the STLP, uh, Sinn Féin, who's the second largest party, and also the Cross Community Alliance Party. They're all greatly opposed um, to this move. The the picture on the unionist side is is a little bit more complicated. Um, Obviously, we know that unionists are very much opposed to the protocol. And so there are certainly some within the DUP who very much welcome this move from the UK government, but actually want it to go further. They want the UK government to disregard all aspects of the protocol, including those checks uh, that apply from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. Now, it's interesting uh, 
the position that the DUP leader and first minister, Arlene Foster, is in. So last week, she kind of accepted um, in an interview that uh, the protocol was inevitable and that uh, they had to accept the reality of it and implement it in full. Obviously, this latest move showing that UK government doesn't intend to do that has slightly changed the balance. Um, Foster said yesterday that she was still intending um, to comply with the law, but that didn't mean that she shouldn't try and change the law. But what we've actually seen is this move by the UK government potentially embolden other ministers in the Northern Ireland executive um, to perhaps um, consider whether they want to implement those parts of the protocol that they're responsible for. So the agricultural minister, Edwin Poot, who had previously said um, that he wouldn't do anything to help facilitate new agricultural checks on goods entering Northern Ireland from Great Britain, is now apparently reportedly looking into pausing those preparations that were finally underway. Um, and we've heard reports that there's a big argument with civil servants there. So there's a big question of uh, the strain that this might put on the executive. It's really reigniting this issue um, around the protocol, which obviously has all these kind of constitutional dimensions to the debate. Um, and there's there's a lot of questions about whether this might worsen relations in the executive. And therefore, a big question as to whether the UK government can really be taken seriously when it says it's doing this for the peace process. What about the argument from ministers that this is necessary for business? We know business is very concerned about the operation of the protocol the supermarkets are very concerned they might have to pay tariffs on stuff that is moving from GB onto supermarket shelves in Northern Ireland, clearly not on any normal person's definition at risk of going into the single market, um, that they don't particularly want to have to um, have more bureaucracy and whatever. So have they actually welcomed these moves? Because government says it's doing it to give them a degree of certainty. And they've been very worried, I think, haven't they, about the lack of preparation time for the end of the year for the protocol coming into force? Yeah, well, I was speaking to um, some Northern Ireland businesses earlier in, in the week. And what, what they were saying was, we didn't ask for this, um, essentially. Obviously, there are aspects of the protocol that they would like to change. But equally, they recognise that it's in international law, um, it's going to have to be in place and their priority is making it work. I mean, the other thing to point out is that really this doesn't make any difference to the vast majority of the most extensive checks that will be in place. As I said, those going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, it's really only tinkering around the edges. Um, so this minor issue around exit summary declarations. You mentioned the at-risk criteria. As I said, that's a job for the Joint Committee. And there is still an expectation that the Joint Committee will make that decision. Um, so as far as I can tell, um, I think mostly Northern Ireland businesses just want to make things work. And they're concerned that if the UK creates this kind of legal grey area, that it might have really damaging implications for businesses that operate in that space. There's even a question of whether um, other businesses that are based in other parts of the UK might not want to really trade with the Northern Ireland market because they're not sure whether they'll be breaking the law just because the UK government says that they won't be. Um, so I think the, voice, the, the general uh, sentiment coming from the Northern Ireland business community is that they just want to get on with it. Okay, Maddie, um, the other party to this, of course, is the EU and indeed the Irish government. How are they interpreting this move? Do they just see it as negotiating tactics from the UK to get what it wants in the joint committee? Or do they uh, are they taking it more seriously than that? 
So as the week has unfolded, we've we've sort of seen um, a sort of developing position from the EU. So at the start of the week, um, when there was this was first announced that the government might be doing this in the internal market bill, there was a sort of question about what exactly they were intending to do. So we saw a slightly more measured um, response from the EU. So the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, said, you know, we are watching and, and we we um, the sort of reach an agreement on the future relationship will depend on sort of full implementation of the withdrawal agreement but they didn't go that much further but now I think there is more of a concern about exactly what the UK government is intending um, and I think we, we've now seen that you know there has been um, as you mentioned Jill at the beginning in your introduction there is now an emergency meeting of the joint committee to try and figure out exactly what the UK is intending and what it means for the discussions that are going on there I mean it's also worth saying that actually the sort of message we've been getting is that you know conversations in the joint committee were progressing relatively well you know we, we know that that the UK and the EU have been struggling to reach agreement over the future relationship but but actually relations in the joint committee have, have been going well and so I think there's a real concern that the UK government's approach here this sort of um, this approach to to anticipate not reaching agreement there might undermine um, any goodwill that exists so yeah I think I think we've now definitely ending the week on a much more negative note to the one that we started on. And in parallel, uh, Michel Barnier is again in London on the eighth round of talks with uh, his UK opposite number, David Frost. Do we think this is going to have any knock on into those talks about the future relationship, which uh, weren't going anywhere fast, I think might be a fair description in any case? I mean, I think that is a fair description. Um, I mean, it's worth saying that you know, the EU is is going to continue to engage with those negotiations on the future relationship. You know, the EU doesn't want to be responsible for those for those talks breaking down. Um, we know that this government is more likely to, to blame the EU for any sort of no deal outcome. So I think that they will be keen to ensure that that sort of they can do anything they can to ensure that doesn't happen. But I do think it does make it harder. You know, this government agreed an international treaty with the EU at the beginning of the year. They've now indicated that they might be willing to break that. That doesn't really build up the goodwill necessary to agree another treaty with the EU. And I think that this is going to be the big challenge for this government. It it could be that they're using it as a negotiating tactic. I think we've had discussions about what exactly the motivation is, and it feels like there are different reasons why they're doing it. I mean, it could just be a real concern that the EU aren't to be trusted around around, um, the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol and and a concern that actually um, the UK government, you know, that the EU will impose additional checks or make it much harder for goods to be traded from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. And that definitely has been suggested somewhere. But but I do think that the, the, the fact that the UK government has sort of made this move now does potentially undermine some of that goodwill. Obviously, we will be getting presumably a press statement tomorrow I mean that might from from uh, Michelle Barnier at the end of this round of talks so that might give us a bit more of an indication of where we're at but as you say these talks haven't been progressing there are some quite big sticking points still so so I don't think I don't think this if this was a negotiating tactic from the UK government I definitely don't think it will have worked and uh, uh, and we've seen uh, the Prime Minister sort of being quite relaxed about the possibility that we end up with no deal on the future relationship with the EU. But James, the government's been rather rather keener to land a deal with the US. Uh, has, uh, has this move actually put a question mark over that? Congress is normally very sensitive to what is going on in Ireland, at least the Irish-American lobby there is. 
It is, and the chairman of the House and uh, the House Ways and Means Committee, which is the committee of the lower house of the U.S. Congress that scrutinizes trade deals, has already uh, fired a shot across the bows uh, of this, pointing out that that uh, any breaches of the Good Friday Agreement would undermine any prospect of a trade deal with the U.S. The only thing I would say is that it's not like it was looking easy to begin with. Uh, so there were already enormous uh, barriers, not least the fact that the U.S. is now heading into an election. Uh, if we get a new U.S. administration after November, uh, which the polling is still saying is the most likely uh, outcome, uh, then it will take a good few months for that administration to be back on its feet, uh, because unlike here, uh, there is no uh, permanent civil service at the highest level. So they will need to appoint not just uh, a US trade representative, the kind of trade secretary counterpart, uh, but also a whole load of uh, junior officials to negotiate that deal. Um, and then, of course, we had all of the obstacles to a deal that we've known about for ages and that we've written about lots in the past, like uh, the infamous chlorinated chicken and hormone beef and US agricultural exports generally, uh, and the NHS and the BBC and all of the other uh, fears that people have about a US trade deal. Uh, So uh, yes, it has made it harder, uh, potentially, uh, but it's not as if it was looking very easy to begin with. All right, so it's gone from hard to harder, but not from slam dunk uh, to uh, not in the back. Um, So that's the Northern Ireland row. Um, But as we said, this internal market bill has managed to, uh, to create rows also with the governments of Scotland and Wales. Um, Jess, Michael Gove yesterday in the sort of press uh, press statement that the government put out alongside the bill said that this bill represents a power surge for Scotland and Wales. So why are they kicking off? Why don't they see it that way? Yeah, so the Scottish and Welsh governments would argue the opposite. They have been calling this bill a power grab. Um, So whilst Michael Gove is right uh, that a lot of the powers that were previously kind of held and exercised at EU level will return to the devolved administrations, the Scottish and Welsh government um, see the principle particularly of mutual recognition um, and to some extent non-discrimination as an unacceptable constraint on their ability to use those powers. Um, So they're concerned that this UK internal market bill, this legislative principle, um, might be used to strike down acts of Scottish and Welsh Parliament um, if they do things that might um, prevent Uh, access for English goods to their markets. So again, as James mentioned, the big elephant in the room is always chlorinated chicken, um, that the Scottish government wouldn't be able to ban it. Um, But there's also some kind of more nuanced arguments about uh, environmental concerns. So the Welsh government have said that they wouldn't be able to operate their kind of uh, bottled return scheme or kind of restrict um, the kind of types of plastic that are allowed on the Welsh market under this legislation. So they would argue... um, that in that way, um, it constrains their powers even more um, than they were previously. Isn't the reality that just because England is so big, that at the end of the day, Scotland and Wales would end up having to be rule takers anyway, irrespective of what uh, of what they did? Because people won't want to produce just to the Scottish or Welsh market. Um, In the same way as lots of people argue that although the UK may actually leave the EU, it will at the end of the day 
really end up following a lot of EU rules because that's what business will want to see. We spoke at the beginning about the kind of risks um, to the internal market if there wasn't something in place to protect it. Now, what the UK, um, what the Scottish and Welsh governments would argue is that there's already work ongoing at something to protect that. Um, and that's through this Common Frameworks um, programme through which the four governments will collectively agree kind of either minimum or maximum standards or principles of in mutual recognition in specific policy areas. So they would argue that that would address these, these problems um, of uh, potentially introducing trade barriers that would prevent trade barriers within the UK. And that would also, because it would require agreement of all four governments, um, prevent England from simply just kind of unilaterally doing what it wants and then that having implications um, for the, the Scottish and Welsh governments. Um, so they would argue that there already is something in place and that is sufficient, that this is a, a step too far. So is this basically, is the fact that government's legislating now a sign that that common frameworks process has run out of road? Because we heard quite a bit about it uh, you know, maybe 18 months ago, two years ago, but not very much since. So work is still ongoing um, on common frameworks. They have been quite significantly delayed. In, in, partially, in part, this is due to kind of the lack of capacity in the devolved administrations dealing first with no deal Brexit and now with COVID. Um, the intention is still to have most of the um, to have a couple of those frameworks fully agreed um, by the end of the year and some other kind of more skeletal agreements in place um, as well. Um, but yeah, there certainly has been a kind of slowdown in that. But what we've heard is the, I mean, the Scottish and Welsh think that this is a naked power grab um, from the UK government. They think that uh, the UK government doesn't care about trying to come to an agreement. It basically wants a mechanism via which it can control what the Scottish, Welsh and governments do. So in a way, um, I guess this is a sort of backstop um, of a kind of legal power that the UK government can use if those common frameworks don't end up doing what suits England. So one of the things we've come used to, Maddie, uh, in the EU is that decisions are made collectively through the Council and the European Parliament, but then they're enforced by the European Commission, backed up by the European Court of Justice. Um, are we going to see an equivalent of that in the UK? Is there going to be an enforcement authority? You mentioned a bit of this earlier. And will it end up with uh, the courts here striking down Scottish and Welsh laws? Is that how disputes get resolved? Or... Uh, or what? Well, I think, I mean, you you mentioned how, how sort of the EU institutions support the functioning of the EU single market. And I think that is one of the challenges of the UK government trying to map on sort of the, the sort of uh, this this sort of approach onto the UK just because of the different constitutional makeup of the UK. You know, the UK government acts for England, but also sometimes acts for the UK. So it's both sort of it, it's both a, it, it acts as a judge on what's going on in the UK, but also is has has got skin skin in the game, as it were. And I think that's what makes it so complicated as well. I mean, ultimately, the thing about it is that while the devolved administrations do have uh, powers to uh, legislate in certain areas, ultimately, because of parliamentary sovereign, sovereignty, um, you can't really bind the UK parliament in the same way. So while the government can limit what what the devolved legislatures can do, they can't limit limit what the UK Parliament can do. And that, again, adds to this level of complexity. So, yes, we might end up in a, in a position where if uh, the Scot 
Scottish or the Welsh governments um, try to legislate in certain areas which end up contravening what is set out in the UK Internal Market Bill, we might see um, the courts intervene. But I think this is one of the biggest gaps that we have in the government's plans at the moment, is that currently what they're saying is that if there is a dispute at the sort of political level, if governments, if the governments aren't happy with what's going on, it's going to be resolved between the governments. Um, but actually, we know that the process that we currently have, the current intergovernmental machinery, just isn't isn't sort of up to that purpose fit for purpose at the moment they launched a review of this back in 2018 but we haven't seen a result of the review um there are still massive gaps in terms of how how they're actually going to oversee this and work together um you mentioned the the monitoring authority um at, at the st- that we discussed at the start i mean all it will do is monitor what's what's going on it can report on le- regulations that governments may want to introduce but it has absolutely no powers to say they should or shouldn't do that so ultimately the U- i guess to sum up that you know the uk government uk parliament has ultimate power to to legislate across all of these areas the courts can possibly intervene when it comes to the scottish and welsh um parliaments and then there's just a really big gap in terms of politically how they're going to manage all of this and try and ensure that actually we don't get to a stage where the courts intervene um and so i think that this is one of the biggest challenges is it's pretty knotty and it's not quite clear that the uk government has necessarily thought all of this through Okay, so some loose ends in a bill that's supposed to be clearing up some loose ends, but let's let's move on. Um, of course, we're talking about this, but the bill isn't legislation yet. Uh, this week, we had the first reading, so the publication of the bill. The government has a majority of 80 in the Commons, very different position, of course, to Boris Johnson's predecessor, Theresa May, give or take uh, Julian Lewis. Uh, and ministers seem to be very keen to get this bill through quickly. Maddie problems do you think the government's going to face in getting this through in the Commons? How's it going down on the Conservative backbenches? Well, it's a bit of a mixed bag. I mean, on the one hand, you have the sort of the group of Conservative MPs, the European Research Group. So they're the sort of more hardline Brexiteers who are basically saying the bill doesn't go far enough. And they want ministers to take powers to be able to actually, you know, completely regulate how that border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland will work, um, sort of regardless of any decision taken in the Joint Committee that would, as I say, go a lot further in terms of undermining the withdrawal agreement than the government currently seems to want to go. But on the other hand you do have some conservative MPs who feel very uncomfortable that the UK government is so willing and openly saying it will disregard international law I mean if anyone watched uh, the Theresa May's question to Brandon Lewis Northern Ireland Secretary of State on Tuesday um, there's sort of no doubt to my mind that she's one of the people who who is quite uncomfortable with this government's approach so it's slightly difficult at this stage to work out how the numbers will exactly step up. As you say, they do still have a pretty big majority. So I would presume the Commons probably won't necessarily stand in their way. But I do think that the bill is going to have huge problems when it gets to the House of Lords. This is the sort of stuff that the House of Lords really get their teeth into. You know, rule of law is extremely important to many, many of members of the House of Lords. You've got a f- quite a few um, eminent judges and, and lawyers in there. So so I think we're going to see some pretty heated debates there. And, and also a lot of members of the House of Lords who are very concerned about devolution and the constitution. So I think that, that that's probably where the government is going to run into its biggest issues. I think what will be interesting to see is that if the Lords do amend certain provisions in the bill to address some of their concerns, the question is, is that when it returns to the House of Commons, 
would the government then insist um, on actually, for example, including provisions that will break international law? And and I think that's when we might end up seeing sort of some quite big, uh, big tensions playing out. And can the government keep to its timetable, um, given the fact that the House of Lords uh, can't be guillotined and is likely to have quite a lot of problems with this bill? Well, uh, we've we've seen today that the government set out its timetable in the Commons, which is extremely fast. And, and given that that the government is claiming some of these problems occurred because they hadn't quite realised what was in the withdrawal agreement because they didn't have enough time to scrutinise it, um, I think there is a certain irony in the fact that it wants to pass the Internal Market Bill within about two weeks in the Commons. I can imagine that they are partly doing that so that they allow more time for this back and forth with the House of Lords. I mean, it is very very interesting because you know we we've seen we saw big issues in some legislation under Theresa May's government that related to Brexit we saw the Lords amend quite a lot of that legislation but ultimately they sort of deferred to the Commons so they never actually really insisted on any of those amendments um, holding so I think what will be very interesting is to see whether this really is just a step too far and we see quite prolonged ping ping pong with the House of Lords and then the government will be up against it in terms of its timetable I mean it is worth saying that you know, the concern about introducing new trade barriers within the UK, James has already said that actually, on day one, there isn't that much of a risk of that happening. So actually, if 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 this bill does go beyond the end of the year, from that perspective, that probably wouldn't raise big, you know, create any big problems for the government. The question is, is that if it wants to use those powers, it's taken around the Northern Ireland Protocol. And if there isn't agreement at the Joint Committee, then it, it, that would make it more difficult and they, they wouldn't be able to use those powers straight away. So at this point, I'd sort of say, wait and see. Um, but, you know, the government definitely is is hoping it will get it done. And, and I think it's timetable in the Commons reflects that. Yes, won't the government argue that the Lords actually should sort of, you know, put up and shut up, because this is, after all, a government that was elected with a thumping mandate to get Brexit done. And uh, and it also had those references to unfettered access for Northern Ireland in its manifesto. So actually, that the conventions say the Lords shouldn't mix with stuff that's manifesto commitments. Um, I think that's something the UK will definitely, the UK government will definitely argue. I mean, I guess the counter argument to that is that the UK government was elected to um, implement this withdrawal agreement, which includes the Northern Ireland Protocol in full. Um, as Maddie says, uh, the Lords are very hesitant to uh, use the powers that they do have. They do defer to the to the uh, primacy of the Commons, but perhaps this will be the exception. Um, I'm sure if that happens, then talk of Lords reform will quickly come back on the cards. Um, But um, I think it will be an interesting uh, thing to unfold um, as as the bill passes through Parliament. And what about the uh, devolved governments themselves? Can they do anything to hold this legislation up? They clearly don't like it at all. I mean, the short answer to that is no. Uh, so under the Sewell Convention, which says that the government will not, the UK government will not norm- normally legislate um, for anything that involves devolved matters without the consent of the devolved parliaments. Um, so that means that each of the devolved parliaments will have the opportunity to vote on whether to uh, consent to this bill or not. And actually, all provisions of this bill will require devolved consent. We already know that Scotland, um, the Scottish Parliament is not going to do that. Uh, Scottish government said that consent is impossible. Um, it's not clear whether the UK government might be able to bring uh, Wales round, but I think perhaps the uh, 
provisions on the Shared Prosperity Fund might be the final nail in the coffin. So it's possible that they might refuse consent as well. Um, in Northern Ireland, it's not clear whether the executive will even be able to come to an agreed position or whether they'll even put a consent motion to the Northern Ireland Assembly. If they do, it will be, will be interesting to see what happens there. But the UK government has already shown that it is very willing to pass bills without consent. Uh, so the Withdrawal Agreement uh, Act was consent was refused in all three parliaments. And nonetheless, the UK government Government proceeded with that under the um, arguing that this counted as one of those situations which is not normally. I do think it's slightly harder to make the case um, in this scenario. The UK government has plenty of time to pass this bill. As we said, it's not a day one risk. Um, but nonetheless, given how little the regard the UK government has had for the opinions of the devolved administrations in the introduction of this bill, which I think is just compounded by the fact they're intending to pass it on such a short timetable, kind of suggests they're not really even going to try and compromise to try and get this consent. They're going to go ahead without it. James? Um, I was just going to say on the subject of the Lords uh, not respecting the privacy of the Commons, it is exactly true to say that uh, issues relating to the rule of law are some of the few areas where they have in the past uh, shown willing uh, to uh, break the sort of normal rules of the game and uh, and block bills entirely. One of the very, very few instances uh, when the uh, Parliament Acts have had to be used, so the Acts that allow uh, the House of Commons to enforce its will uh, after a, uh, after about a year. Um, one of the few instances when that has ever been used was the War Crimes Act 1991. And this was an act uh, which was intended to give UK courts the power to judge Nazi war criminals. So, you know, a pretty laudable purpose there. And the House of Lords still blocked it because they considered that it was a threat to the rule of law, that it looked suspiciously like retrospective legislation uh, and, uh, and that sort of thing. So rule of law issues really are some of the very few areas where the House of Lords has been willing in the past uh, to uh, to use the powers it's got, um, and one can imagine that happening again in the future with a bill that looks like this. And James, is there any possibility this might end up uh, with a court challenge in the Supreme Court? Does anyone outside have any sort of um, basis for challenging this law? We've seen that before when the government's tried to do things uh, which people have perceived playing slightly fast and loose bits of the Constitution. It would not surprise me if it ended up in the Supreme Court. In fact, it's probably quite likely, um, especially if it goes through under the Parliament Act. Well, there have already been cases uh, in in the Supreme Court or the House of Lords at the time, um, which dealt with the application of the Parliament Act in controversial areas, notably the, the hunting legislation, the ban on fox hunting. Uh, so, I mean, it's the kind of thing that you can imagine uh, ending up in the uh, Supreme Court. And it's the kind of thing that you can imagine the Supreme Court not looking particularly favourably on, particularly given this clause at the end of the bill, uh, which effectively says that the uh, provisions uh, in the bill or made under the bill have effect, notwithstanding any domestic or international law whatsoever to the contrary. Now, that looks suspiciously like uh, what's called an ouster clause, an attempt effectively to prevent the courts from adjudicating on whether something is legal or not. And that is something that the English courts are very, very suspicious of. Okay, so watch this space. This may end up in the Supreme Court. Um, some people have suggested that actually this is really uh, just a device to finally force Keir Starmer to say something about Brexit. So, Maddie, uh, where's Labour on this? We know where Welsh Labour is. They're, after all, the government in Wales. But um, have we heard much from the opposition about this? 
So I think Keir Starmer is is continuing his his general tactic of not getting drawn on Brexit. Um, I mean, that Labour have have criticised the government's uh, sort of willingness um, to breach international law. So they've definitely gone quite hard on that route, but they definitely do not want to get drawn on Brexit more than they have to. So I'd say, yes, they've, they've, they've criticised the government's approach, um, its willingness to breach international law um, and questioned its sort of respect of the rule of law, but it, but it hasn't gone much further than that. And I think I did see uh, Keir Starmer sort of tweeted saying, look, this is the, this is the deal that you, you agree, so let's get on and deliver it. So he's, he's not going to get drawn much more on the Brexit question, I don't think. OK, we can watch the votes and debates uh, next week on the Committee of the Whole House, which uh, for those of you who are missing your Brexit compulsive viewing, uh, it's coming back. So tune in to your favourite parliamentary TV channel next week. Um, and then there's the Prime Minister Liaison Committee as well, where he's no doubt going to be asked, uh, asked some questions about this. Um, I just wanted to finish on the prospects of a deal with the EU, the big future relationship deal still up in um, you know, Maddie, just last word from you. It's been suggested by some people that actually this is a very big dead cat, maybe even a sort of big dead tiger, the tiger that the Prime Minister promised would in the tank of the negotiations back after that slight sweetness and light event in the summer to distract before a sort of climb down by the government, throw some red meat over there, and then actually, you know, move on some substantive issues. Do we think this has made a deal with the EU more or less likely? I mean, it's it's really is the, the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, I mean, it really depends what, what goes on in these conversations this week, both in the future relationship, but also in this emergency joint committee meeting today. I think it is very much feasible that this could be a sort of um, attempt to distract backbenchers while the UK makes concessions elsewhere. But it, as I sort of said already, it really, I do think, has undermined goodwill. So while at the start of the week, or at least before the FT story broke on Sunday, I probably was more optimistic about a deal being struck. I do think it probably has raised some questions. Um, But I I don't want to prejudge what comes out of the Joint Committee and also um, out of the sort of statements following the the wrap up of this round of negotiations um, on Friday. So I'm going to be quite hesitant and say, I still definitely think a deal is possible. Um, But this probably this does pose a risk to that, though. I do think that. Um, So I'm afraid, Jill, I haven't given you a particularly straight answer. But I think anyone who claims to know quite what's going to happen is probably kidding themselves. Uh, I think Maddie's just preparing for her career in politics there. So, uh, but we will all know the Prime Minister has, after all, set a deadline for making that deal-no-deal decision of the 15th of October, the European Council that takes place then. Uh, That's it for now. Thank you all very much for listening, particularly if you've made it through. Hopefully that has told you everything and possibly quite a bit more than you wanted to know about the internal market bill and why it's proving so politically controversial. So thanks very much for listening. Listen to more of our podcasts and do say you like them. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.